0: liberty
1: well what is up all of our liberty loving friends this is another fantastic episode of good morning liberty my name is nathaniel paul thurston currently i'm sitting here by myself i can hear charlie he's downstairs on the phone on a conference call he was supposed to be done about 45 minutes ago and he's still going Very, very important stuff that's going on right now. But anyway, I'm going to talk to you while we're waiting on Charlie to wrap that stuff up because it's White Pill Wednesday and it's something that we haven't done in quite a long time. I mean, it's been a bit. It's been tough to talk white pills lately. Uh, We've got a lot of crazy stuff going on in the country. We've had crazy stuff going on in our personal lives. If you hang out with us in the Fed Haters Club, uh, you know that for one of us, not me. It hasn't been the most white pill season uh, in 2023. But anyway, we're going to talk about some good things that are that are going on. And hopefully, Charlie shows up for what the main topic was going to be. We're going to do a little review on this Netflix show, Painkiller, and some of the new news that has popped up surrounding that whole thing with Purdue Pharma. And then also some recommendations on uh, changing the scheduling for marijuana Not a full white pill, but I do think it's a step. It's literally a step. And it is a step in the right direction, but not the direction that we all know it should go. If this is your first time listening, go to BernieLies.com and you get a link to every single thing we have. Go to JoinGML.com and you can come hang out with us in the private Discord channel. I'm hanging out with the fine people on the Fed Haters Club right now. Now, at Good Morning Liberty, we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meeting every single day of the week. When we want to, the rest of the week is going to be interesting because I'm heading off to Denver tonight. And I'll be doing some travel shows from there once I figure out what exactly my setup is going to be. I'm going to start with something that doesn't seem like it's a white pill. It's a study from nature, but I'm going to tell you why it's pretty cool uh, after we go through the synopsis of this study. We all know that climate change is a big deal these days. And um, I know that that's what people are going to be pushing and pushing. And as we've been saying for the last couple of years, I think this is going to be bigger than the COVID lockdowns. Eventually, we'll be getting into the climate lockdowns. And this is going to be controlling a lot of the economies around the world for the foreseeable future. Uh, We had the deadly wildfire in Maui that we did several episodes talking about. And I guess they're still searching for people. I don't know what the death toll is right now. Uh, But this article in Nature says climate warming increases extreme daily wildfire growth risk in California. So important to note what they just said. It increases the extreme daily wildfire growth risk in California. So we're drilling down to some pretty specific things here. The study's authors will be important when I tell you why this is actually a pretty cool Story that this has turned into. Uh, California's experienced enhanced extreme wildfire behavior in recent years, leading to substantial loss of life and property. Some portion of the change in wildfire behavior is attributable, attributable to climate warming, but formally quantifying this is difficult because of numerous confounding factors and because wildfires are below the grid scale of global climate models. Uh, they let you know that they use extreme. They use uh, machine learning to quantify relationships between temperature and all this uh, extreme daily wildfire growth. Uh, they find the influence of temperature on the risk is primarily uh, through its influence on fuel moisture. Now we talked about all this with um, with Maui. You know something that they that they said they released a warning saying that they had an, if they had another hurricane in august that it was going to pull moisture out of the air was going to lead to some extreme dry conditions and that they would be vulnerable to wildfires Uh, so they go through all this and they give you some numbers for how much the risk has gone up they say warming has enhanced the aggregate expected frequency of extreme daily wildfire growth by 25 percent on average relative to the pre-industrial conditions but for some fires there was approximately no change and for other fires There was as much as a 461% change in the risk. And so they give you these numbers of climate change, some fires, there's a 461% greater risk of these things happening. Now, back when we used to go through studies all the time, of course, what you would need to look at is what is the risk? A a 461% increase in a 0.01 risk of something uh, makes it still not that great of a risk, uh, but they're not giving you these numbers specifically in this study. Why would I bring this up for a white pill? The reason I brought this up specifically is that there's this organization called the Free Press. Uh, started by Barry Weiss and some of the other good journalists that we talk about are, are members of this as well. And, and they put out some really good stuff. I would recommend signing up for their email list. Well, the title of this recent article from them that came out yesterday was I left out the full truth to get my climate change paper published. And this is written by Patrick T. Brown. Well, you'll notice if we go back to the study from Nature that I just told you about how climate warming is increasing the extreme daily wildfire growth risk in California, the first author listed right there is Patrick T. Brown. And so here's an article coming out right after this thing in Nature comes out and says, I left out the whole truth to get my paper published. And now this is getting published by the Free Press. This is an op-ed written by this climate scientist. And so this, this is interesting. This clearly piqued my interest. I think I even tweeted this out. Uh, they, they go through here and said, if you've been reading any news about wildfires this summer, you'll surely get the impression that they are mostly the result of climate change. They show some article headlines. Climate change keeps making wildfires and smoke worse. Uh, From PBS, wildfires driven by climate change are on the rise. From the New York Times, how climate change turned Hawaii into a tinderbox. Bloomberg, Maui fires show climate change's ugly reach. And this author came out and said that they left out some important information so they could actually get the paper to be published. And so this is what, this is the explanation. They say, I'm a climate scientist. And while climate change is an important factor affecting wildfires over many parts of the world, it isn't close to the only factor that deserves our sole focus. So why does the press focus so intently on climate change as the root cause? Uh, They say, perhaps for the same reasons I just did an academic paper about wildfires and nature, one of the world's most prestigious journals. It fits a simple storyline that rewards the person telling it. The paper I just published, which is the one we were just looking at, focuses exclusively on how climate change has affected extreme wildfire behavior. I knew not to try to quantify key aspects other than climate change in my research because it would dilute the story that these journals like nature want to tell. So he says uh, this matters because it's critically important for scientists to be published in high profile journals. In many ways, they are the gatekeepers for career success in academia. Now, what's important to remember here is that you have to trust the science. You got to trust the scientists. You got to trust the journals that these things come out in. It turns out that these are just, this is me talking right now. I'm not reading this person's paper. Uh, it turns out that these are just people who have career goals and aspirations. And they know that if they get published in a prestigious journal like Nature, then it's going to be really good for their career. And so they will study things in a specific way that will lead to them getting published by that journal. And that is literally what this person is saying. The editors of these journals, back to the, to the uh, article now, the editors of these journals have made it abundantly clear, both by what they publish and what they reject, that they want climate papers that support certain, certain pre-approved narratives even when those narratives come at the expense of broader knowledge for society. To put it bluntly, climate science has become less about understanding the complexities of the world and more about urgently warning the public about the dangers of climate change. So this is one of the things that we've been trying to talk about every time we read one of these studies that we find. And of course, we're conspiracy theorists for doing so. Uh, You can pick one very specific thing and if you want to just center it around climate change and you want to look at the risk that climate change has as it relates to wildfires you could say well as we have more climate change or as temperatures grow then the risk of climate change causing wildfires goes up upwards of over 400 percent like that paper was saying but what portion of the full risk of wildfires is that it turns out it's a, it's a very small amount. Uh, they say, why is this happening? It starts with the fact that the researcher's career depends on his or her work being cited widely and perceived as important. This triggers a reinforcing feedback loop of name recognition, funding, applications from aspiring PhD students and postdocs, and of course, accolades. Uh, they go on to talk about how the number of researchers have skyrocketed Uh, he says that the biases of the editors and the reviewers they call uh, are the major influence on the collective. Let's actually talk about some of the science behind this from the climate climate scientists who who did this paper and then was published by Nature. And they say the first thing the astute climate researcher knows is that his or her work should support the mainstream narrative. Namely, that the... Oh, hey, Charlie, nice of you to stop by for a visit. (sighs)
0: Ugh. That, that went on forever. What's weird is they extended the presentation to like 1045. I
1: heard, I heard
0: that. And yeah. then Ashley called me afterwards and yeah, it went to 1130. So I have 31 minutes before my next meeting.
1: <laughs> Where are we at? Well, we're talking about... The show can finally I, start. So we can finally start the show. We can finally show.
0: start the show.
1: So I started by telling everyone, showing everyone this... Uh, this, uh, article from nature, Charlie, and it's talking mm. about the extreme daily wildfire growth risk in California. Okay. Mm. But there was a article that came out from the author of this study saying that they left out the truth to get their paper published. Uh. And so the, the other thing to remember is that this research was actually done years ago and it takes time for these things to actually get published. And so this person timed it for when it actually got published in nature. To have this big op-ed from the free press uh, coming out saying that they left out the full truth to get their climate change paper published,
0: so this was kind of the plan the whole time. It's,
1: it seems that like because now they're they're working for someone else who's uh, you know trying to help with climate change, but not the way that, yeah. that everyone uh, wants them to. So this is genius. They say in my paper we didn't bother to study the influence of these other obviously relevant factors. Uh, so they're talking about. They're, they're talking about something like humans who start 80% of the wildfires. Uh, poor forest management. Um, it's things like that. They didn't look at that. They only looked at climate change's impact. Uh, they said, did I know that including them would make a more re- realistic and useful analysis? I did. But I also knew that it would detract from the clean narrative centered on the negative impact of climate change and thus decrease the odds that the paper would pass muster with Nature's editors and reviewers. So... It is White Pill Wednesday, by the way, mm. so that I'm trying to frame the really cool thing. Number one is that we have an outlet like the Free Press who publishes things like this. that are really cool. That's the one started by Barry Weiss and uh, some of the other big journalists that we uh, hear from uh, publish things from the Free Press or in the Free Press. Um, it's cool that this kind of information is coming out. I don't know how much it's going to help, but it does feel nice to be a little bit vindicated because if I would have taken this, if I would have taken this study, and looked at it, I would have said something like, well, they're only talking about the climate change wildfire risk. What about all the other things that cause wildfires? And so the paper says that climate change has increased the extreme wildfire risk by 461% in some places of California.
0: And this is how they get their funding. This, this is, is how they get all kinds of things. Yes. Now this leads me to a libertarian discussion, Nate. Okay. You have it real quick.
1: Very quick. Cause we got to talk about painkiller. We do.
0: Uh, but the the libertarian solution typically is having the private market, right? Kind of audit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, if you if you if Good Morning Liberty gives their stamp of approval, they have an incentive, right? So, aren't these journals independent? They are reviewers. And how is it that they are? Because I think this. I think a solution to this would be to have another journal that mm-hmm. grows to be a high profile one as well to compete with these other journals that scientists can get published in for actually telling the truth yeah. and not sticking to a narrative. I, Cause I don't know if you read this part or not, because he says this matters because it's critically important for scientists to get published in high profile journals mm-hmm. in many ways. They're the gatekeepers for career success in academia. And those journals are independent. They're not government functions. Most of them, I think some are like in Canada and stuff, but Most of them are not a lot of them have funding, but a lot of them, I think that's the issue. They get funding.
1: Yeah. And um, that, that definitely is a big part of the issue. And I get that being the, the libertarian conversation, you know, wouldn't a private entity do better with this. The backstop on that is that what they're trying to do when they release these papers is they are trying to make the case for why the government should steal our money and control our resources Give and control the way that the control, the way that we use energy and what kind of products can be put out and all that. And so there's a, there's a really big money making and control apparatus that things like this are feeding things like this paper are feeding that if you had your libertarian answer, those things wouldn't be feeding that giant money making apparatus for controlling the world's economies and our energy production and, and, Uh, products and services, things like that. It all boils down to incentive. You take away that incentive structure over the top of it and you, you lose it anyway. Yeah. You kind of fix that problem. Now, what you were just talking about becomes very, very important for the other conversation. Uh, It does. It's extremely important Mm. for painkiller. Why is this a white pill? Why are we talking about painkiller? One of the most difficult and heart wrenching shows I've ever watched on, on Netflix um, I thought Matthew Broderick did a good job. He did. Yeah. Uh, Taylor Kitsch, I think, is his name. The guy that was in Lone Survivor. Yeah. Um, he did a really good he did job. A good job. Uh, really great show. If you I haven't, I thought the girl from
0: it. Orange and New Black did a good job. Yeah. Although it's not really historically accurate, but <laughs>
1: yeah. I thought she. We did can it. mention that her um, acting was good. If you, uh, if you haven't seen Painkiller, there's probably some spoilers. Although this is a Historical event. The only spoilers you would get is if we mention a lead character and whether or not they survive the entire show. Everything <laughs> else is public knowledge. Yeah. Uh, okay. We've we already know that. So if you're worried about spoilers for fictional characters that don't exist in real life and whether or not they're going to survive the show, put your uh, earmuffs on. Yeah. Then maybe earmuffs for this. Why is this connected to a white pill? It's connected to a white pill because the Supreme Court recently, in the last few weeks, blocked the $6 billion opioid settlement. And this settlement, this bankruptcy settlement for Purdue Pharma Pharma, would have given the Sackler family immunity. It would have given them immunity for what happened with the opioid crisis, what's Mm -hmm. going on right now. Now, we don't spend a lot of time talking about evil corporations and evil capitalists and how they should be criminally liable for things, or even financially liable for things. We we typically uh, come on the side of uh, it's it's not their fault. It's their the it's the customers or it's the government or it's the whatever. Um, after looking into this a little bit, and yes, I did just watch the show. I can tell you, I think the Sackler family should. Die in prison, yeah, and I think all of their money should be taken away and uh, and given to the families. And um, and, and I, it wasn't because they
0: created the drug, it no. wasn't because they sold the drug, it wasn't because doctors wrote prescriptions or whatever. And it's not because people don't need pain medicine. The real crux of this is, and why I why I believe that they're evil, um, is you do have a, over a million people that have died of opioid opioid mm-hmm. overdose. Um, and it's the way in which they pushed the drug um, to create incentives for doctors to increase dosage to make
1: more money. I don't, That's So that process, I don't even think is the criminal part of it. I think it's the I think it's the line about it. Right. I, I think it's. Uh, so when we talk about this. And well, I had, that
0: was that goes hand in hand. So they lied about what the actual effects could potentially be to increase dosage to make more money
1: yes um my initial reaction to charlie uh when he talked to me about this show and uh people i know have had the exact same reaction is, uh well you know people know better they shouldn't get hooked on opioids we all know that they're addictive and and that's you know that's on you i get it they're probably evil people running the company but at the end of the day it's personal responsibility and it's on the people who uh choose to go down this path and and uh, people get addicted to drugs, and and that's just, you know, that's the that's the way it works out sometimes. Uh, but is it really their fault? In in this case specifically, uh, they lied about knowing whether or not it was addictive in cahoots with the FDA. By with the way, with the FDA, so we do still have the ability to blame the government in the scenario. Um, I did do a little bit of digging on the FDA official who approved it, Curtis Wright is his name um, initially did not get approved and they had to do a little bit of work on him. Mm -hmm. We don't know what work they did on him. Um, It is. The only thing we know is they spent three days in a hotel with him. Yes. And magically he refused to approve the drug uh, a few times. And then they took him to a hotel room for a few days. And after that he approved the drug and then a I, year later, I, he was... A year later, he went to work for Purdue Pharma. Making a lot of money. So... That's so weird. No what tell a
0: coincidence. Him.
1: No telling what happened. What they a pro- freaking coincidence. I probably just played him testimonials of people that were in pain and needed this medication yeah. because they were in pain. Or they pulled the Epstein Island on him, which is what I think happened. That's what I okay? think, too. We have no. We don't know what happened. No one knows what happened. We weren't in the room. They don't even address it in the show, really. Uh, they, they just show them going into a hotel room. Um, there's no telling, but the FDA did eventually approve this. And that's where the libertarian part of the solution uh, starts to come in because it, it is the government that put their stamp of approval on this and allowed them to tell people that it was believed to not be addictive or be far less addictive than all of the other opioids that were out there on the market.
0: They also approved it for moderate pain.
1: Yes, you know you got a migraine yeah you know take some i know someone
0: so okay one day i'm gonna tell my whole story but that today's not that day but just so you know this hits close to home for me which is why i was so invested in it and why it affected me uh the way that it did i'm gonna not i'm not gonna get emotional on the show i'm not gonna do it not gonna do it (laughs) um but it hit close home to home someday you will and uh yeah and so one day you know there'll be a story told uh, today's not that day, but um, so I, I had talked to some people um, that I know in the industry and one person told me that they had, you know, taken over a clinic for this doctor and um, this doctor was incentivized to prescribe Oxycontin or Oxycodone or whatever um, in the Oxy family. And, uh, was even given it to like 17 year old girls who had sprained their ankle. Yeah. And then now, now that 17 year old girl is, I don't know, in her 20s probably and is addicted. Mm-hmm. And because of an ankle sprain. Yeah. And so that to me is the insanity of this. But the doctors made more money by writing those prescriptions. Now, there's a whole drug pharma thing out there there are drug reps for everything right and they do their incentive is to get the doctors to prescribe um these things but when you have that type of incentive for a medical professional to prescribe an opiate for an ankle sprain like that type of example there's another documentary that i watched as well called dope sick that has michael uh michael keaton docu series yeah docu series um and that's on hulu um, and that is a more historically accurate. It follows Michael Keaton plays the doctor who ended up getting addicted to these as well. Um, he's now been sober for about 20 years and he tells a story. It's fascinating. Um, but he, he got all these people hooked on it. He got hooked on it himself. He saw some of his patients die and I just can't imagine like what that would be like, mm-hmm. um, um, to be helpful. And then there were people that were trying to blow the whistle on this thing, uh, that were hushed multiple times. Um, several doctors trying to be like, we all know that this is insanely addictive. And the fact that they're saying it's not is completely insane. Um, so anyway, when I watched it, it's, it's to me, it's those types of things. It's not that the drug was created. It's not that people take it. And it's not that, um, that those types of things happen. It's the way in which they lied as an incentive to make as much money as possible, knowing that it would destroy people and their families.
1: Yeah. And this and that's re- the
0: most heartbreaking part of all of this.
1: So if you want to separate out like the personal responsibility side of it, uh, because I was, I was talking to someone about it who had the personal responsibility, uh, reaction as I did the first time, um, I responded to Charlie about it. Um, if you take it back to like nineteen ninety-five, well, the people who were originally being told, Oh, hey, there's this new drug on the market. Uh, it's less than one percent addictive. Makes you feel uh, great. You know, makes you feel great, works way better and everything, lasts for twelve hours, and that's why it's not addictive. And so it's pretty safe to just uh to prescribe to everyone. And the patients are like, Okay, well, you know, it's even if you're a personally response, you know, you're You're a personally responsible individual, okay? And you don't want to get addicted to stuff. And your doctor tells you that this is something that's not addictive because that's also what they've been told by the drug reps uh, from Purdue. Well, then you kind of do remove a lot of your responsibility in that scenario. Now, it's currently 2023. And anyone who sprains their ankle and goes in and someone says, okay, well, let me set you up with uh, 20 days worth of Oxycontin. First off, your doctor's probably going to lose their practice if they're going to do that nowadays. Um, but anyone who goes in and acts like they don't know that it's a super addictive substance, uh, they're they're wrong. You can do enough. You can do enough research. It is widely known that it is addictive, and so you need to be very careful with these things. Uh, but back in the day when it was first released, that, I kind of don't blame. A lot of those initial patients even, that got I mean, put even on this, 10 you years, know? Even 10 years ago,
0: people yeah. didn't really know. Some people did, but it wasn't as public as it is now. And now...
1: They they had their first congressional hearings in 2001 mm-hmm. over over this whole thing. But remember, you know? they all passed it, yeah. basically.
0: They were like, oh, okay, everything's fine.
1: You know? So uh, when it comes to a libertarian conversation on this and then... um. I guess some of the white pill about it is what the Supreme Court just did. Uh, This didn't get approved automatically uh, because they had not done testing on whether or not it was addictive. And that's why it wasn't getting approved. It eventually got approved with no more testing. They didn't have to do anything else. We don't know exactly why it got approved. And so the blame, a lot of the blame... Yes, goes on the people who made it, who knew what they were doing. A lot of it also goes on the FDA, who is who are the people in the government that we have trusted to look into these things for us and put their stamp of approval to allow them to be sold. Now, as libertarians, we not even think there should be an FDA. All right, so that's a weird argument to make. Mm-hmm. But I also would like people to study drugs and approve them, and put their seal of approval... And like you mentioned earlier, GML puts their stamp of approval on something. Well, that means something to me, you know, now what happens if GML puts their stamp of approval on something says it's not addictive. And then it turns out, you know, within seven or eight years later, oh, this is wildly addictive for almost everyone who takes it for a certain amount of time. That whole GML stamp of approval thing means basically nothing.
0: And the, the thing about that being in the private market is you would have a way to take action against that you because would. the crime that's still going to be committed in this is that the FDA is going to hold no responsibility yeah. whatsoever, no. even though they put their stamp of approval on it with the language. They helped, literally helped them craft the language about it not being addictive. I was listening to a Rogan and And inter- nothing's going to happen to them.
1: I'm sure the Rogan FDA interview. is just going to keep going. Uh, this Rogan interview was from about a year ago and he, and, um, Oh, sorry. Maybe it wasn't the Rogan interview. It was another, I was listen, watching some doctor's channel on YouTube. He was, they were talking to someone who had done a, uh, freedom of information act request with the FDA trying to get Curtis Wright's, uh, emails and correspondence. And they said that they had been lost. They didn't have any of his correspondence, oh. uh, with Purdue pharma. Interesting. Uh, so, um, it is. It's weird how things like that happen. Was it with Clinton's emails? <laughs> Maybe. 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 it's on a private server. Yeah. Somewhere. Okay. Um, the problem here is that the organization that we trust to approve these drugs fails time and time again. Well, we don't trust. They them, can get bought. Off, yeah. They can get <laughs> bought off easily. Uh, they can be promised a job making three times their government salary if they come work for them next year and then they just keep going. We still just use the FDA to approve these drugs. Whereas if there were a private market of drug approval or drug recommendation, whatever it, whatever it may be, you have a brand name associated with this that you want to protect. And our GML stamp of approval, if we approve something and it turns out that there was something shady that happened and we fudged the numbers or they fudged them and we were okay with this, uh, well then we lose all of our brand credibility. And And people should be allowed to take action against you. Yeah. Or we're just done. Like we no longer, Mm -hmm. no one calls us to approve their drugs anymore. Our business is done because no one trusts our name on their product anymore. And so we, even before whether or not there's any action taken against us, we have an incentive to not let that happen because we want our brand on the box to mean something. Right. When we do, and it it doesn't mean that this
0: type of solution is going to prevent things like this from happening Um, because it, because like, look, we look in, we live in a world that isn't perfect. It'll never be perfect, but maybe, maybe only a hundred thousand people would have had to die Mm -hmm. before this would have blown up, you know? And then that way, look, you saved 900,000 lives.
1: Or maybe they would have had to do more studies to show whether or not it was addictive. They would have seen that it was wildly addictive and it would have never been used for that kind of prescription in the first place. Yes. That's that's the other thing that mm. could have happened. And and that was the FDA's job. Yes. To stop that from happening, because, yes, evil people exist that just want to come in and make money. They're supposed to be the ones that stop this and they're going to have no liability for it. Yeah. Now, who does end up having liability for it is Purdue. And there is a story here from CNN. Uh, they did get a six billion dollar um, settlement in their their bankruptcy settlement which is up from four and a half because it was four and a half billion i think six billion might include some assets and stuff like that i I think the cash was four and a half uh maybe it's up to six i don't know uh anyway total six billion dollars and in this bankruptcy settlement they're basically removed from any future liability yeah they somehow put immunity inside of that in a bankruptcy filing Mm. they got criminal immunity in a bankruptcy filing And so the Supreme Court has blocked this settlement and is now looking at, I think they're going to, is it September? Is it this month that people are supposed to start coming and uh, presenting the case to them? I can't remember. Maybe I took that part out. Uh, But we might see that this this family is still going to be held liable in some way. Because maybe the Supreme Court is going to decide that you can't just file bankruptcy and remove yourself from any sort of criminal liability in something. And this is a a rare occasion where like, if you knowingly lied about something and knew that it was going to be addictive and you lied about it it needs to be something. It's like, imagine I sell you
0: a car that has no brakes, but I tell you that it has brakes, Yeah, you know, and then you, you die or get severely injured. Like who's responsible for that?
1: They could say, maybe, I should test the brakes for it. But you sold me the car. We were parked on a hill in San Francisco and I bought it from you. And by the time I tested brakes, it was too long. It was too late. Yeah. I couldn't stop. Right. That was it. Yeah. So. And
0: I do think, you know, one of the things we talk about with personal responsibility is ultimately, like, I do think that even if you trust someone, you should still take the personal responsibility, but that doesn't mean that it absolves the other person of their responsibility not to knowingly harm someone else. Yeah. And that that to me is a libertarian position that you own yourself, you're responsible for yourself, but also your rights in where another's begin and you can't knowingly and will, willingly hurt someone and take their stuff.
1: Now I'm going to tie another what I'm still going to call a white pill into this because we're talking about oxycontin which is being prescribed for pain. All right? And there are other things. That people use for pain in some states all right those states that have been willing to defy the federal government and say that they're going to use it anyway and that thing is marijuana now i think that uh, i think that people are a little bit wrong about their feelings on marijuana i don't think it's something that you can just smoke as much as you possibly can, and you're never going to have any side effects your entire life. Yeah. And this is why I found the white pill in this, because anytime I talk about marijuana, the first thing I say is that we need more research on it. And it's very hard to do research on marijuana when it's a schedule one narcotic and you got to get approval from the DEA, and which it's they won't give essentially, essentially impossible to do legit clinical trials with it. Because one issue I've always had is that your general, I'll say stoner, but I don't mean it in a negative context. Okay. But your general marijuana stoner would tell you something like this like, oh, you can do as much of this stuff as you want to, and it's never going to, what are we talking about? <laughs> They'll tell you something like that. Did you hear that? <laughs> oh, that
0: guitar sounds so good.
1: I think that they are wildly wrong about this. And I want the data on this. And the uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. Why, how do you know? How do you know that they're wrong about it? I Listen, as a libertarian, I think it's best to conduct your own studies when the government won't allow you to do it. Okay, and I know people. All right? I know a guy. And uh, the uh, HHS has formally recommended that it, is moved from Schedule One, which is an insane schedule for a plant, yeah. on the <laughs> like, same level as opiates. How did they come along and schedule yeah. a plant at Schedule One? Yeah, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Uh, down to Schedule. Well, I mean, opiates come from poppy.
0: That's a plant too. Um, although they have to do a lot. Yeah, to you got to do
1: a lot of stuff. We're not
0: but. just we're not just snorting poppy over yeah. here. You know, um, or drinking milk of they, the poppy.
1: They've officially recommended that it be moved from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. And now that's not what needs to happen. They need to recommend that it it be made fully legal or decriminalized completely because it's a plant and people should be able to uh, do what they want to their own bodies with this natural substance. And if you go down that road, I mean... That's up to you, I guess. Just get all the knowledge that you can before you do it. And the problem is we haven't been able to get all the knowledge that we can because the government's been blocking people from getting the knowledge. Mm-hmm. But this move could actually change that. Uh, this from MarijuanaMoment.net, one of the first websites I check in the morning when I wake up. Actually, so, you get their email updates. Yeah, yeah, they send me stuff. Text yeah. updates, actually. I yeah. If the U.S. government moves marijuana to Schedule 3 of the Controlled Substance Act as the Department of Health and Human Services has now formally recommended, the shift could have profound implications for all sorts of cannabis-related issues, ranging from research to business taxes to U.S. Postal Service mailing rules. In the aftermath of the HHS announcement, some of the proposals' would-be consequences are clearer than others. For instance, it's evident that cannabis businesses could, for the first time, claim standard business deductions on their federal tax returns, freed from the restrictions of the IRS tax code, section 280E, but other matters such as what exactly the shift would mean for federal workers are still a bit murky. So one thing, there are all these cannabis businesses out there. First off, they can't really deal with banks because they're dealing with something that's federally prohibited. They can't, fi- they can't use standard business deductions when they're filing taxes because you can't deduct for a business selling something that's federally illegal for you mm-hmm. to sell. And so it's been, really, it's been really tough on them to uh, another to way is
0: to go through the banks. Yeah. So it's, a, you know, who do you bank with?
1: Um, so this would not make it legal under federal law. We know that regardless of whether they comply with their own state law. Schedule 3, which includes ketamine. Ketamine. Uh, whatever, however you want to say it. Okay. Oh, listen, how long has it been since you watched Armageddon? Okay. One toxicology report revealed ketamine. which is a come on (laughs) which is a horse tranquilizer Uh, steroids and Tylenol with codeine so uh, still highly regulated and not permitted to be sold without a DEA license or used by consumers with a doctor's prescription or other authorization Uh, while medical marijuana might become broadly legal if the change goes through most states would need to overhaul their systems in order to strictly align so they talk about taxes and banking we already mentioned uh, some of those things the research part is what I'm most interested in. Rescheduling would mean sweeping changes for cannabis research, removing many of the barriers to obtaining and using cannabis for scientific investigation. Uh, Key's Senate committee recently noted that the drug Schedule One designation means scientists face limited access to sources of marijuana, further hobbling research. And this is just the thing that I want so much. And why am I tying this into the painkiller thing? Because I, I think that we might have a, a natural alternative to some of this crazy, synthetic, addictive, murderous nonsense that mm. people have been taking that has been held off of the market, once again, by the government, who also approve the other stuff yeah. that's killing a bunch of people yeah. and will not allow people to do this stuff, which I will admit, like, okay, it doesn't... Not just
0: killing a bunch of people, it's affecting
1: yeah, and And then millions de- destroying more. families yes. at the same time. Crime, all kinds of stuff, you mm. know? And we have this thing, which is pretty good at alleviating pain, both physical and psychological. It looks like it wants to give you a high five. It looks happy. Yeah. You know, it looks like a happy plant. Okay. Here's the other thing. So Nate just said they won't legalize it because big pharma would lose big time. And I think that that's been one of the main drivers. But what is mentioned in this article is that moving it to schedule three might mean that big pharma is about to get in the weed business mm. and so while i'm they not probably already are and i think that they might be the ones pulling some of the strings mm. to get this moved to the tampon 500 because <laughs> because of the opioid thing and mm-hmm. i think they are moving this to schedule three so they can now <sighs> get into the weed business what a coincidence now that's not a are great that pr- white pill nate
0: but... That's all just circumstantial evidence. I know,
1: I know. How I know, can you follow weird.
0: that path, you know, to think that somehow this is calculated, all right?
1: Oh, uh, I hate to be that cynical about everything, but after years of reading through all this stuff, you know, um, I think that's, I think that <clears throat> might be what's happening. it
0: looks like a duck and yeah. flaps like a quail, it's probably a duck.
1: Now, in in general... <laughs> that is still I gotta po- go. it's still a positive step in their oh you come in late and you leave early every day i know oh, you i knew you had life. to leave at noon the whole time i knew i know that that is not the white pill that we're all looking for and they will likely still keep this controlled with schedule 3 because it rather than making it legal where just anyone can produce manufacture and sell uh, have a business doing this instead they're going to skip it to A Schedule 3, so their friends at Big Pharma can now get into the weed business. And so they can still keep their monopolies and patents and, you know, their ability to sell this to people while other people don't have the ability to sell it. I know that all that stuff is very much not a white pill that we're looking for. But even if you look at the outcome, even if that is what happens, and I know that we don't like it, but even if that's what happens, that is still a major step in the right direction uh, for, for people. Anyway, if you enjoyed today's show, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell the children, subscribe, follow, uh, retweet on TikTok, share on Facebook and whatever else you do on other social media websites. If you do every single one of those things, then I'll be right back again sometime this week tomorrow at least we'll have a dumb bleep of the week on friday i know that and until then have a good day and a good morning liberty